This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. A military operation on the West Bank, midweek protests erupt on the streets of Tel Aviv, and a conversation with one of America's most seasoned observers of foreign affairs. It's unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yoni Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy Tujus on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Uh, what can I tell you, Jonathan? Just the news just keeps on coming. And one of those weeks where the news in Israel is the news. I mean, people yeah. around the world were watching what was going on in Jenin. They were comparing it with the events there 20 plus years ago. I think it was one of those classic, and we've told, you know, I've used the metaphor before, one of those Rorschach tests, the ink blots. It looked like one thing in Israel. It looked like something very different outside. I mean, we'll talk about that. But I mean, it came and went. It was 48 hours long. But why don't you just uh, break it down for us in terms of what prompted it and, and how, you know, commanders, politicians, voters in Israel are, are thinking of it before I say something about how it looked on the outside? Well, this is what it looked like uh, from the inside, a uh, 48-hour uh, operation, uh, as you you said, uh, an operation, Janine, that the government believed became uh, inevitable. 27 Israelis have been killed in terror attacks since January, Janine being one of those epicenters of terror. And the Israeli military, obviously not regularly in Janine, neither is the Palestinian Authority these days. That's part of the problem. And I think Israel had this um, real concern that Janine would turn into Gaza, being this uncontrollable area. So so that is what we saw this week. Immense uh, firepower, uh, boots on the ground, obviously a brigade size force bigger than usual in the uh, West Bank, and, and a decision to open up with uh, a targeted airstrike against an operation uh, room run by Palestinian and militants and three Palestinians killed in that part of the operation. And, and due to the fact that Israel was trying to protect its own troops, uh, what you saw was sort of bulldozers cutting trenches into the road. So so when the army uh, left after 48 hours, it left a, lot, a whole lot of destruction. I assume we'll discuss that in your part of what it looked like from the outside. The first day did see a few clashes. The second day saw the guerrilla forces and the Palestinian militants essentially either leaving Janine or hiding. So a lot less... A blowback for the IDF. One Israeli soldier killed David Yuda Itzhak, probably tragically due to friendly fire, and 12 Palestinian dead. The um, IDF saying these are all uh, militants, all armed. The Palestinians yet not uh, officially saying their response to that. Usually they're quicker in saying some of those were civilians, all of those were civilians. But in this case, as I said, the IDF is saying that they are all uh, militants, yes, Israel came in and out. I think that parts of the Israeli government expected a much larger scaled operation, but this was a 48-hour thing. During that, uh, we should say that there was a, uh, an attack, a terrorist attack in Tel Aviv, a car ramming into uh, civilians standing by at a bus station with uh, nine Israelis uh, injured and the uh, terrorist uh, himself uh, shot by an Israeli civilian. So I made this point about how these things look different depending where you stand. So, uh, you know, I've been reading the Israeli commentary and there's been a lot there, which I understand, by the way, praising the sort of efficacy or, or rather the efficiency, perhaps is a better word, for of or in military terms and saying that, you know, that comparing it with the battle of Janine two decades ago and saying, 
you know, this time the force involved, but Palestinian militants, about 300, same this time. But this time it was over in 48 hours. Last time it lasted for weeks. Then, the you know, Israel was fighting with this kind of lumbering force of heavy equipment of tanks and infantry reservists. This time it was special forces. They were more nimble. They were armed with, equipped with accurate intelligence. So they knew exactly where these weapon stores and hideaways of equipment were. They had, you know, cover in the air from these armed drones and, and sort of real-time intel on where things were and using these more as I said, agile vehicles. And so, you know, militarily, the military commentator saying, good job, you know, and the fact that there was very little contact with the Palestinian fighters on the other side, you know, on the one hand, of course, that's what guerrilla fighting and warfare is about. You melt away if there's about to be a conflict that you're going to lose. So I get all of that. And then on the outside, what has been reported is, for example, what you know, I know, again, the military would completely defend, but the smashing up of infrastructure, damaging of water and electricity infrastructure. And a perfect example, just sort of emblematic of the whole thing, is this business of the roads. Because from the Israel side, Israeli bulldozers trashing these roads, good thing, because there were explosive devices buried in those roads previously that have exploded Israeli vehicles and caused casualties. So it makes perfect sense to kind of shred those roads in advance. But then what goes on the sort of media around the world is images of a trashed area. And I saw people on social media saying, no, this is not, you know, an, a town in Ukraine after the Russian army has visited. This is the West Bank. This is Janine now, you know. And I think this clash between the two perceptions came to a head, and I mention it just because it is emblematic, on the BBC, mm-hmm where Naftali Bennett, former prime minister, obviously not responsible for any of these decisions, but there, in effect, as a spokesperson for Israel, coming on and being questioned about the fact that some of those Palestinians killed were underage. They were under 18. And the interviewer saying they're children and him saying they're armed militants. You know, yeah, and she's saying worse than children. She's saying Israel is happy to kill children. And of course, immediately people say, well, that's the blood libel right there that Jews somehow want to or happy killing children. But the specific point about the militants thing, you could see that Naftali Bennett thought, look, a 17 year old with a gun, and he didn't say this, but he could have done, aiming at an Israeli soldier who might be just six months older, right? Mm-hmm. Who could just be over 18. That's a, somebody with a gun. That's the only thing that matters here. But the BBC journalist thinking, children, you know, isn't that terrible? And the ink blots look different depending where you are. I think, by the way, Naftali Bennett with more, if he thought about it longer, could have easily said, look, that is part of the tragedy of this situation, that we're in effect in a situation where there are child soldiers involved. It's tragic that there are 15, 16, 17-year-old Palestinians armed. But once they are, they posed a threat. and. Right. We had to do what we had to do. He could have said that, but he didn't. But I think the point is, uh, the BBC has since apologised, by the way, and they've recognised that particularly the question you picked up on about using this word happy was wrong and they shouldn't have worded it that way. I mention it all just because what looks absolutely common sense in Israel, and not just common sense, but a good operation, well done, tick the box, more efficient than 20 years ago, well done us, that's how it looks in Israel, 
outside, people ask a whole lot of other questions. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. By the way, he did kind of answer and say something like, what if a 17-year-old picks a rifle and shoots at your family, he asked her, and she really didn't have an answer for that. We don't, on this podcast, usually pick up examples of bias against Israel in the international media, because if we were doing that, we'd won't have time for anything else. This was, That's a uh, spin-off, spin-off idea. We could <laughs> we have a whole poker. One on cricket week. and one on bias, international bias against Israel in the media. But surely this was this was above and beyond the wording of it. And I think obviously it's it things look different from a different vantage point. That's for sure. If you're convinced that Israel is the root of all evil, then that is I think where a question that like that can come from. Uh, definitely, the pictures are would look different uh, in different places in the world. Should we move on to what else is happening? inside Israel this week? and Before we before okay. we just do, I just wanted to mention one point of common ground in some of the commentary inside and outside, because this was definitely made outside, but I have been in some ways gratified to see a commentator saying it there too. So the BBC's Middle East editor said, essentially, you know, described what he'd seen, embedded there, in Janine, sees it all, and then says, and this will keep happening because this is, in a sense, a hundred-year-long conflict over this land, right? Mm -hmm. But then Amos Harel, brilliant uh, correspondent for Haaretz, ends his report saying, without a scintilla of a diplomatic horizon for the Palestinians, the violence will continue. That's always my reaction to these things. You can get stuck in the micro of, of this military tactic or that military tactic. Bottom line, as long as there is no, and there is no, political process or peace process right now. How Amos Horal says it is clinically dead. As long as that's true, of course these things are going to erupt. How exactly, where exactly, how long they'll last, we can debate. But this will keep going on and keep going on until eventually the two sides do grasp this painful nettle and work out how they're going to live with each other. I think that some Israelis would point out to you, as you well know, that it was actually specifically during those processes of attempting to reach peace where the worst terror attacks happened because it was the militants who tried to prevent this from happening. So that is Absolutely, maybe another yeah. point. No, those people on both sides always want to wreck mm -hmm. these peace processes. And, you know, with the assassination of Rabin on the one side and Intifada on the other, there are always people who think the biggest threat of the lot is the possibility of peace. But without a horizon, I think it will, you and I will be back here talking about another battle, another military operation before too long. So, uh, as long as we are in some sort of agreement, maybe, let's uh, move on to what's happening inside Israel. Also a lot of news uh, this week. Yeah, I mean, and and just with such lightning speed, it was one of those, you know, people talk about split screen on TV when two stories running in parallel. It was almost that. Yeah. You know, the other thing was still in its last minutes and then this. Yep. And we will, I, I think we'll try and talk about the connection between what has happened and these operations, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and the protests. But let's first say what happened. Uh, and this was just yesterday, Wednesday night, uh, protests erupted. And we remember at the end of March, right, we talked about this a lot after Netanyahu decided to sack Defense Minister Gallant, who said that the, the military will fall apart if the judicial overhaul continues. Tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands took to the streets then. What happened now was in the same, not in the same numbers and scale, but in the same kind of spontaneity. And it, it was uh, around the story 
story of Ami Eshed. Ami Eshed is the Tel Aviv district police commander. He was ousted. And in his words yesterday, in a press conference, he said that it was done because of political grounds. He said that the minister of uh, national security, Ben Gvir, demanded that he used a stronger hand against demonstrators in Tel Aviv, demonstrators, of course, against the judicial overhaul. And he wouldn't do that. And that is why he was ousted. So when that happened, when he spoke, the protests erupted against Ben Gvir, against the decision to oust him. We should also say, and we'll mention that more extensively, but also because the legislation is, of course, continuing. So that was what we saw uh, yesterday for a few hours. Ayalon Highway, the main highway in Israel, was completely blocked. Obviously, thousands of Israelis stuck in a huge uh, traffic jam. Could be that some of that is a little bit counterproductive, right? If you're you know, leading a protest movement, you want the people to be with you, and maybe this is not the best way to do it. But that is essentially what we saw yesterday. So very similar in the sort of spontaneity, like that night of, of the Afghanistan story, uh, much smaller in scale, though. I mean, it interests me, the spontaneity, hugely. You remember I was kind of really struck by it in mm-hmm. the Gallant case, because I think that's such a rare thing mm-hmm. in countries for people to take to the streets. It says to me that actually any sense, and I think some people did think, there was fatigue setting in in the protesters. It's been over half the year. Now we count probably in months rather than weeks of continual Saturday night protests since January, you know, six months worth. It would be very natural, given how long it had been, if people had just got a bit weary and were beginning to shrug their shoulders. Instead, you get the feeling that it is the tinder tinder box is very dry, Mm -hmm. that the slightest thing will provoke people. And in this case, I mean, a defense minister is one thing, a, a, a police chief for one city, I wouldn't have predicted that, yep. that the ouster or the you know firing of that guy would do it. It means, it says to me that people are on a high state of alert, yep. um, that they're ready for the you know power grab by the government and they are will, are poised to oppose it the second it happens. Right. Look, we should say th- two things. Uh, first of all, you mentioned the, the specific story of the, this police commander in Tel Aviv. It's the prerogative of the minister with agreement with a police commissioner. They can oust a commander in the police. Here, the, the feeling is that you have a minister of national security, highly controversial, a man who was convicted himself in the past. He wants the police to clamp down on protesters. They won't, or they won't do it violently. And then he fires the person who doesn't want to do it violently or is too lenient. So so that has its own, you know, it resonates with with the protesters for sure. Now, let's also say that the government is continuing with the legislation. There was a point in time where Benjamin Netanyahu could have, you know, the king of kicking the can down the road. He could have delayed the session of the Knesset ends at the end of July. He could have said, well, okay, let's wait a little bit. It's summer. It's high holidays. Let's return in November and see what happens. No, he made the decision to go through and to pass what will pass next week in first reading, the reasonableness clause. We talked about this, right? Which will essentially uh, not prevent any minister or authoritative body in Israel to do something that the the Supreme Court won't be able to say is extremely unreasonable. By the way, they could still say this about the decision to oust Ami Ishid. And that is going ahead. And the fact, and you said this, and I think we should reiterate the sentiment in Israel is that a very of, of high volatility, of high tensions. You see a lot of 
vitriolic rhetoric, between, you know, a lot of hatred. What we saw yesterday in Tel Aviv, just small examples, right, of a car, even though Ayalon was blocked, a car continued to drive, running over one of the protesters. He was injured a little bit, but still, that kind of story. You have protesters hitting a car with flags and scaring the children inside. You see this sentiment of people being very, very tense, emotions being very high, and that's, that's very worrying, I think. Yeah, I mean, uh, people watching think that the, here, the notion that you go from a 48-hour military confrontation in Janine straight to Israelis attacking each other mm-hmm. does make you people begin to get anxious that is this a country that is just tearing itself apart? Even actually just the symbolism of that attack where a car continues driving, because of course that had sometimes been the attack from Palestinians on Jewish Israelis, and here it appears that it was one Jewish Israeli against another mm-hmm. using a car as a weapon. Uh, I've said that both of these things look like tensions, but you've hinted that they are not, you know, that you see the connection between the two. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's so strange. We're talking about what is happening between Palestinians and Israelis, what is happening between Israelis and themselves. And obviously these things are are connected in all sorts of ways because look at someone like Bezalel Smotrich, right? I mean, who his dream is a, a dream of of annexation, of expansion, of building as many settlements as you can. By the way, under this government, he also has the authority to do that. It is not a coincidence that he is someone that is such a big supporter of the judicial overhaul because the High Court of Justice, the Supreme Court, they're bothering him. They are not allowing him to continue with his dream to, uh, you know, confiscate private Palestinian land, for example. And he thinks they're bothering him in, in, in doing what he thinks that the IDF should be doing in the territories. That on the one hand. On the other hand, look at what is happening to the protest movement, who at the beginning of this, you know, just talked about democracy and didn't want to talk about anything else, any other problem in Israel. No, 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 let's just talk about democracy. Let's just talk about what happens inside the green line. You see a little bit of of the situation around us sort of trickling in. You hear more and more people saying, especially the reservists saying, if this is your plan for the future of Israel, right, Bezalel Smotrich and, and his friends at Religious Zionism, we're not going to be a part of that plan. And they don't only mean the fight for democracy. They mean the, the sort of overhaul conversation about the future of Israel and the future of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I, I'm heartened to hear you say that because I think people need to make that connection. And it's interesting because these things move forward. One, you know, you take one step forward, but there's also one step back because there were also scenes from the protests of, and I think it was a group of veterans attacking mm-hmm. uh, the left block at the protests whose slogan is, no democracy with occupation. Mm-hmm. They have been present as a sort of block within the protest every week, mm-hmm. often quite marginalized for this pushing this message. And I think, you know, it got to fisticuffs with a group of army veterans just the other day. Yeah. And yet you're, you're, what you're saying there is that actually some, uh, veterans are beginning, as I would put it, to join the dots and to see the connection between these two, two issues that they are not hermetically sealed from each other. Right. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the first letter of the Air Force reservists came a week after what we saw in Hawara. I do think that there was a, a conscious attempt not to tie both of these stories so as to make the fight for democracy a more, you know, an ever-expanding one, a larger umbrella that can include even people from the Likud who are, you know, dissatisfied with what Netanyahu is doing. So I think it's still going to stay apart, but it's very hard even for reality to keep those two apart. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned Hawara, of course, that was the attack on 
a Palestinian community by West Bank settlers mm-hmm. that was denounced by the IDF commander on the ground mm-hmm. as a pogrom. A milestone that just pops into my mind that was passed this week was a hostage crisis resolution of namely the famous uh, hostage crisis in Entebbe and the raid and a different kind of hostage situation. We should just register and record this, making the news. Yep. You know, in a normal news week, it might have been the big story. Actually, we uh, opened we, the, we opened the newscast it. with this yesterday. Even on a very, very big news uh, week, the Israeli government officially saying a story that has been clandestine for a few months that an Israeli woman, a scholar named Elizabeth Surkov, who holds an Israeli-Russian uh, citizenship, uh, was kidnapped by a Shiite militia in Iraq and has been held there for a few uh, months. For all Israel knows, she is alive. She's a scholar. She went there to speak on the ground with with people. She deals with issues uh, around Syria and the Middle East and Iraq. And Israel essentially putting this out in the open now for two reasons. A, because keeping it clandestine hadn't helped in try and rescue her. And essentially to say, A, the Iraqi government is, is responsible for her. And B, anyone who can help us uh, needs to do that because we need to help her out. So all of this uh, is just testament and proof that the world of foreign affairs journalism never stops. It is a relentless cycle with thing, news happening all the time in all corners of the globe. And nobody knows that really better or more close up than our special guest for this week. Margaret Brennan is the moderator of Face the Nation and chief foreign affairs correspondent for CBS. Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan is the number one Sunday morning show in its category. She was the network's senior White House correspondent covering national security and foreign policy. She won an Emmy Award for Outstanding News Special for her coverage of the Parkland High School shooting. And she recently traveled to China with uh, Secretary Blinken. And can I say as someone who's been following her career from Tel Aviv, she is downright marvelous. So, Margaret, we are so pleased and happy to talk to you today on Unholy. Oh, thanks so much for having me. There's so much to go through, but I think the one thing Mm -hmm. that from the Israeli side must be asked is when will uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu eventually, at any point, be invited (laughs) to the White House? Isn't that an interesting state of affairs? Um, (laughs) It's a statement, the lack of invitation. Um, It's often the case, though, that the administration would say that all the communication is still there, even with the leaders not necessarily meeting. I would expect more of these Israeli officials to be visiting in the next few weeks to talk with national security officials here. Mm -hmm. That channel seems to be working, but I have not heard anything about planning for a state visit at this point. I mean, given what's happening with recent violence and given the judicial reform, things are still sort of in an awkward spot, I believe, with the administration. Um, even though, you know, to to many Americans reading these statements from the Biden White House, they seem fairly gentle in criticism. They're still criticism. And that's somewhat unusual to be publicly acknowledging here. I mean, you've mentioned the violence and the judicial overhaul slash coup, depending where you stand, mm-hmm. as issues. And obviously, that's right. I just wondered, and I'm bringing things crushingly down market by even asking this, but to what extent is personal animus part of this. And I just have always had the impression going back even in uh, a long time ago into the when he was Vice President Joe Biden, mm-hmm. that there is just no love lost between these two people and that Biden himself does not really like the guy. And therefore, in the mix with all the other geopolitical diplomatic considerations, to what extent is that part of the mix? I mean, the, uh, President Biden would say as Vice President, he had a 
good relationship with Bibi Netanyahu, which was certainly not the case for then President Barack Obama. I mean, in that case, and I remember covering the administration at the time, there was an animus. That was very full on, full frontal, strong, not just policy disagreement, but it was personal um, with that invitation to come address Congress without giving a heads up to the administration. I mean, just to revisit all of the perceived slights and also the strong disagreement over the Iran nuclear accord. But Joe Biden has had this relationship where he is characterized as more like overtly pro-Israeli than Barack Obama was, even though every American president is pro-Israeli to a very large extent, there's a degree of nuance there. So I don't see it the same, but there is this distrust because remember, so many of the officials in the Biden administration served during those Obama years. So they're a little bit scarred by that and um, that lack of trust uh, or just questioning motivations. When I had uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu on the program recently, uh, a few months ago, and I asked about endorsement going into 2024, he's, oh, I never endorsed anyone. Well, there was definitely <laughs> the perception that he got directly involved in American politics many years ago and not pro-democratic uh, candidate uh, Barack Obama at the time. So that's also sitting there going into an election year, that this is this is complicated. Uh, and you push back on that in that interview. I, I do want to talk about that in- interview, which I thought you know, you really did an excellent job in that. And he's a very difficult person to interview, definitely if you're doing it on a clock. I think a lot of people don't actually understand how difficult it is to interview someone when you have, it's not like sitting in with him for five hours and then editing the best of. It's having 12 minutes and get the best out of Benjamin Netanyahu. That is, that is a challenge, by the way, we should mention. He's not giving any interviews to Israeli media, uh, only to American media. He gave one interview since the election to his own sort of home base channel. And and it, it was really interesting to see that interview because because, you know, I think Netanyahu was used to being this statesman coming to the United States, being interviewed, you know, usually quite softly and talking about Iran and talking about foreign policy. And suddenly in this interview that you did with him, he was like, you know, you pressed him on all the issues that are, you know, so to speak, domestic Israeli issues. You saw that he was in a difficult position. It, um, thank you for, for saying that um, in terms of the interview focus. You know, it is one of those editorial cho- choices to say, here's why we need to talk about what is a domestic or labeled a domestic Israeli political issue. But here in the United States, the relationship between the two countries is so unusually tight and intertwined. Mm-hmm. I thought there was value in questioning the prime minister about the choices he's currently making with his own government, because it was in some ways eye-opening for a public who only sees what you described in terms of a very you know, stark contrast of Iran versus the United States and Israel as a tight alliance against um, Iran. So it, it was an interesting choice that he um, did engage. I mean, he did an interview with me. He did an interview with one of my um, competitors on another network the, the week before. And, and he was also challenged. I think when I hear, as I, I heard, heard from you just now, that he wasn't doing interviews with domestic press, that says a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to go into an interview in any way, helping to avoid the access of the free press. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I was very focused on making sure that we just got through some of the facts of where we are with um, the judicial reform and also some of the choices in terms of cabinet members and the like that the prime minister is making. I, I mean, that decision, which uh, I, I, I've shared your needs for you, but I think it was absolutely the right one to go on those 
as it were, domestic issues when sitting with the Israeli Prime Minister. But it prompts a question in my mind, less about, uh, in a way, your, you, but more about your audience. And uh, this week, when there's been, you know, huge news out of Israel yeah. and the West Bank with the events in Jenin, and I'm interested to what extent that is, how much that uh, Americans care about that. I mean, whether Israel-Palestine is as big a story as it once was. It was once such a you know, hot button issue on campuses and elsewhere that an event like this and a, and a sort of eruption like this would dominate. You know, you obviously have a huge interest in foreign affairs, but for your audience, do Americans care as much about this issue overall as they used to? I think it depends on who you are focused on. I'd say within democratic politics, and that's something that also fascinates me about the relationship with Israel, is is that's changing within the Democratic Party in particular. You mentioned young people on campuses, that key demographic that politicians want to have come out and vote for them, typically Democrats, going into an election year here. And for progressives like Bernie Sanders and others um, in Congress, this has been a huge issue generally writ large to to be less um, reflexively pro-Israeli government and to ask questions about not necessarily the Palestinian leadership, but just the Palestinian people. It's more of a like humanitarian cause that's caught on definitely with progressives. So there's that overlay of politics here um, that is changing and influencing foreign policy. I think that's a really interesting shift. And then within Republican politics, you see this shift as well, as you well know, with the Netanyahu government and how close they were to the Trump administration and so many parallels between embattled, you could say, head of state leader with his own legal difficulties and how he, you know, is handling them. People constantly compare Benjamin Netanyahu and Donald Trump. And some of their styles. So it's like the fusion between domestic and foreign on this one specific uh, country is is different than other ones. I mean, if you ask me what's the foreign policy issue that is capturing the American public's attention, I'd say China to the extent that there is any foreign policy that Americans really pay attention to. And that's more than Ukraine, you would say. Ahead of Ukraine. 100%. It is just the sense of threat. And that you see in um, polling, Pew Research and others have done polls, and it, it's very bipartisan in concern. And so China is the chief foreign policy national security issue that captures the American public's attention. And we can talk more about those issues and why, but that's different. Ukraine is politically charged, but it, it's not the same way I think that I feel when I go to Europe. We will want to go on to talking about China and and Ukraine, but I do want to throw in one more element to complicate the the uh, Netanyahu-Biden relationship, but that is the Saudi normalization, that issue. Because eventually, I mean, obviously, Netanyahu will have to be invited to the White House. This will have to be part of the discussion. Now, I I just want to ask if I'm being crazy with this scenario, because where I come from, usually throwing out hypothetically insane scenarios, and then you discover usually that reality trumps that anyway. So I'm just (laughs) trying to say, am I crazy to think that the Israeli component is something that can accelerate or pave the way for the rehabilitation of MBS in Washington? I mean, for me, I just still am wondering how the Saudi side moves along with this Mm -hmm. under King Salman. That's the part that I still can't quite get my head around that maybe in a few years this happens, but I know there is 100% this push to make it happen and to sort of 
formalize and publicly acknowledge, you know, all the relationships that Israel and Saudi Arabia already have behind the scenes. I don't see it necessarily happening Mm -hmm. in the immediate term, but maybe there's reporting that I'm not aware of. Mm -hmm. When you Um, say the push, do you sense that from the White House? Are they keen to have this and keen to have it in the next 18 months? So it is a foreign policy achievement with a capital F, capital B, capital A that they can boast of as a kind of trophy for the re-election campaign? Or again, do Middle East breakthroughs of that kind not really cut through anymore politically, domestically? I don't don't think they cut through in the same way. I think it's a nice to have versus a must have. I think China is front and center. I think with the Iran, wherever we end up with this, as the Israelis call it, less for less, or, you know, um, some version of a nuclear agreement that just keeping that on a sort of low boil is the goal going into an election year. So nothing blows up. It would be nice to bring home the Americans who are wrongfully detained and have been for a long time. That's one of the Middle East issues, but really it's focusing on China. That's, that's the first focus for, for the administration and Ukraine. I mean, we're going into this NATO meeting in Vilnius, the 11th and 12th that President Biden is, is headed to keeping that moving forward and trying to convince the Republican party that they need to go ahead with additional funding for Ukraine in the fall. I mean, here in this country, we're about to face a potential really difficult political showdown once again over um, funding and appropriations in the fall. And, you know, the the Republican leaders are in different place in the Senate. You have Mitch McConnell wanting to move ahead with more funding for Ukraine. You have Kevin McCarthy, the House Speaker here saying he doesn't necessarily want to go ahead with that. So like, that's one of the more immediate political issues here. So so let's talk uh, about China. And uh, you you were just there with with uh, Secretary uh, Blinken. You also interviewed former Vice President uh, Pence, who called Xi Jinping a dictator. He actually kind of agreed with Biden, who said that too. I think it was Trump who said that uh, she was brilliant. Let's talk mm-hmm. about what you're you're saying that the threats that Americans feel and what you think the Chinese are trying to achieve. I mean, we see Xi meeting with Modi and with Putin and inviting Netanyahu and Abu Mazen and of course Blinken. Right. What does China want and what does the United States want? Um, well, and we have Treasury Secretary Yellen just flying mm-hmm. out today to go in for meetings with Chinese officials. So that calling Xi Jinping a dictator, whether factual or not, um, certainly not the kind of carefully chosen words diplomats would like to have as they try to put up these guardrails. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't disrupt that visit. They're still going ahead. Um mm-hmm. But I think it brings it back to just how complicated this one challenge is with China, because you cannot separate our economies right now. They are so incredibly intertwined. And so this great power competition, you know, no matter how dicey it gets militarily or politically, you still have that difficulty of how do you really go head to head with someone when you're wrapped around each other financially and economically? And certainly when I was in Beijing, we heard so, so much about the Chinese interest in opening their doors again to American business in a real big way because there is concern about an economic slowdown in China. And this is the world's second largest economy that has implications for everyone. So keeping the economic ties there and stable is a top priority. But for, you know, for the administration, they also have to walk this line where we're going into a, an election year and everyone's going to out hawk each other on the right side, all the Republican primary competitions. It's how tough can you be on China? 
And for President Biden, you know, he's actually got the job and he's got to keep it from going into veering into head to head while also appearing tough. And it's interesting that even though, and I tend to disagree because I see how national security is intertwined in everything, but, you know, your average politico would tell you foreign policy, national security doesn't matter in American elections until it does, right? Until something happens immediately beforehand. I think on this, you will see China articulated in the policy positions of both parties in an overt way, but under different names. And what I mean by that is the Republican Party, fentanyl, fentanyl, fentanyl. The the amount of that deadly drug that's being pumped into this country is going to be a foreign policy issue. And that's the domestic face of it with the precursor chemicals coming largely from that country. And the administration thinks they can that China, the Chinese state can can actually choose somewhat to turn that up or turn that down. On the Democratic side of the aisle, President Biden's going to articulate his economic policy as front and center to his presidential reelection campaign. And that's all China, too. It's manufacturing. It's making America independent of China in terms of, um, you know, computer chips and semiconductor build outs and all sorts of technology. So it's um that's the thing that's the hardest I think, problems that we face. I mean, it's in striking now when you think back to the 2016 campaign where Donald Trump was, you know, breaking new ground, banging on about China so much. And now there are these very striking continuities, in, in not, not in tone, but in substance between 100%. what he's saying and what Biden would say in a campaign. But just, just to be sort of parochial to the Middle East region, just on China, this business of China acting as a kind yeah. of, you know, matchmaker with Saudi Arabia and Iran and all that. Again, the same question I think probably people in foreign policy circles are scratching their heads over. But what's your read of that? What game are they up to in, in a move like that? It's hard to like get, get your head around, right? I think for China, it's the Chinese state, at least everything they articulate is about their own self-interest as with many states, but, you know, either getting a, a foot in the door on whatever, you know, mineral supply access to, it's really about that versus sort of, you don't hear the articulation as Joe Biden would put forward as this is about values, Western values, and this is about democracy and this and that. It's not exporting that. It's really about like, okay, what piece of this pie do I get as a state leader if Iran is, you know, once again, able to pump out more oil or, you know, I, I'm, I'm a bit cynical, I guess, in my read of the intention there. Um, and that's how I understand it. But I, I want to wondered if we could move on to the issue that you you know say that Americans care about less uh, than China, and that is this Russia Ukraine mm -hmm. question, and particularly the patience of the international community, for which read in a way Washington will run out when it comes to Israel's position of walking this kind of high wire mm. between. Moscow and Kiev in a way. And there's been a degree of understanding extended to Israel that they're in a very particular position with Russian involvement in Syria just over the border. I've spoken to diplomats here who've said, you know, the, the clock is ticking on that. The patience mm -hmm. of allies of international community is wearing a little thin and will, you know, will get thinner. But again, you're somewhere where you're going to be hearing those conversations more. What What's your read of, of the patience threshold and whether we're sort of reaching it? 
Well, it does sort of fly in the face of if you look at this through the framing that Joe Biden articulates, which is this is an existential threat to democracy and the global world order, right? Like, that's a pretty binary choice. Which side are you on? Um, so to, to say we're not going to pick a side, but then you, when you talk to national security officials, they do sort of have a harder time, not so much just on the, the Russia front, but on the Iran front. Um, and the uh, degree to which, you know, there, there's the argument that Iran could seize particular military um, items off the battlefield and thus benefit. Well, you know what? Russia is probably sharing with them anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and we already know that that has changed the calculus a bit on the European view of Iran and how to handle things right now and how to, how to view the Iranian state, the degree to which they are building their relationship with Russia. Um, that's pretty complicated too. I think on the, um, Ukraine front, in terms of how things are communicated here at home, it's interesting if you listen to Mike Pence, the former vice president or other Republicans who are taking a stand that's very pro Ukraine, anti Russia in a way that some within their party are not as vocal on. They will link China and Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, you will constantly hear Xi Jinping cares about how the West responds to Vladimir Putin. And that's why you should care. So there is this like framing, linking the two to the American public. I I don't know. I mean, I I think with NATO and all the complications of articulating to the American public, a lot of the things that Donald Trump articulated in this frustrated, angry way that alienated European partners is something that now has kind of become mainstream in terms of criticism of the U.S. needing to be in a leadership position, even when it comes to Europe's own security in its own backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, but for Joe Biden and what he does in terms of pushing the alliance along to provide more weapons and when, that is something Republicans will hit him on. Even if they're pro-funding, they will criticize him for being too slow to act. Some of what the administration would say in terms of an excuse on why they are too slow to authorize certain weapons is they'll blame the Europeans. Well, the Europeans aren't okay with that. The NATO alliance isn't all right with that. So how do we split it up to say uh, the US or the UK can give this weapon, but as an alliance, they cannot. It's um, it's hard to articulate to the American public, isn't it? I mean, just, we follow this stuff because we're into it, but it's, it's, you talk about nine-dimensional chess. This is a huge puzzle to constantly put, put together. Yeah, and the American taxpayer needs to be convinced that he needs to continue to foot the bill for this, which is right. also, you know, incredibly complicated, definitely if you're, you know, moving forward into an election uh, year. I, you know, I have to ask a little bit about, I want to ask a little bit about you and Face the Nation and, you know, the work that you do there. And I see, you know, every time I read something about you, it's always that you're the only woman anchor who, you know, holds the Sunday uh, morning news show. That that might change soon. That will change Mm -hmm. soon. It will. Mm -hmm. And I always wonder reading these, you know, the first who's doing that, the only woman who's doing it, being under that title of, of the first woman to anchor the news here in Israel as a solo anchor. I always wonder if the fact that people keep pointing to that, is that actually helping us? I don't know if I'm asking this in the, in the most articulate way, but mm-hmm. in a sense, the the more you live in a world in which this is still an anomaly, that is, it means that not enough progress has been made. Obviously, 
a lot of progress has been made. We're not in that, right. you know, the 70s where there was the women in the balcony, right? Then the women report, the female reporters had to report about what is happening at the press club and they wouldn't let them in. So they have to stand in the balcony in Washington. We're not there. But have we actually made that much progress if that is something that people continue to point at? Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a, it's a good question. It's something that when I first took this moderator job, I was very uncomfortable when people were talking about my gender or the only, you know, Sunday show host at that point who was female. And, and um, because I knew at the end of the day, I would be judged on my performance and my ratings. I, you know, I would have the same sort of harsh judgment there, but that there were things I couldn't control for in terms of how people perceived me based on my gender, you know, the, oh, she interrupted or, oh, she was too aggressive or, oh, she was this, like, you know, or even just being pregnant. You know, I, I had went through two pregnancies on television and this sort of old school thinking of like, is it going to alienate certain people? Watch me get pregnant and have a child on, you know, like over the course of my pregnancy and then come back. Those things, uh, you can't solve for somebody else's issue, but you do have to kind of acknowledge that that is there, that who you are and what you look like and how you behave is affected by that person's preconceived notions. So I just kind of walked into it saying, I don't want to talk about that so much. I'm just going to focus on my work and just be incredibly prepared for each interview and felt like I had to, you know, be overprepared, frankly, for each interview. And I think it, has paid off. I also think that once I became a mother through my two pregnancies, I realized that I should talk about it more um, because it means something to other people who are watching me, younger women in the workforce, but also that it's incredible all the juggling people do. And like, why are we trying to make it seem like it's, it's perfect or we have it, you know, figured out and to acknowledge that and to talk about it more, I think is important. So that's a like complex way to answer your question. But I think it's great that um, my, you know, soon to be competitor on NBC will be uh, a woman. Kristen Welker is a friend of mine from covering the White House. I think she's a great person and I think she'll do a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that, you know, over on Fox and on CNN, they often have women in this role. Shannon Bream just took the reins after Chris Wallace left. Um, and at ABC, Martha Raddatz often fills in. So I think that's awesome. And I think if we weren't performing well, mm-hmm. <laughs> we'd quickly, we'd quickly be removed from these jobs. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, I, I think there is progress in that way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I'm a little bit more comfortable talking about it. It's interesting you say that you feel the need to talk about that because it's important for, for others to listen to that, to hear it. Well, I just felt like I didn't have anyone to talk to about, you know, in terms of other people who it's a pretty um, small circle. You know, I did have my colleague, Nora O'Donnell, who is the only female anchor of the evening news. And, you know, she would openly talk about uh, coming back early from attorney leave and how she handled it when she was at another network. And, you know, you hear these things, and you go, oh, okay, so maybe we should talk about it more. And I saw some of my um, correspondence colleagues who just happened to be, you know, having children around the same time. And to have someone turn around and be like, hey, FYI, did you know that you can ship breast milk? <laughs> like, and it remains frozen. And there's a company that does that. And by the way, you know, the, the corporation will help you do that because 
I just figured that out and I had no idea until I started asking these questions. You know, these things that are like, FYI, I figured out this part of this very complicated <laughs> calculation of, you know, how do you come back early from maternity leave, do interviews? I remember I was doing an interview with Donald Trump when he was president during the Super Bowl. And I was trying to figure that out. How do I leave my four month old baby to go do a show remote while also making sure that he has the food that we have made a decision because it's the best thing for him. You know, like, how do you do it all? You just juggle all the time. And so it, I just found that it was helpful to be able sometimes to turn to someone and be like, hey, like, I'm totally working nonstop and it's not perfect. And by the way, I only look like that on Sundays because there's like a hair and makeup artist that makes me look <laughs> put together. <laughs> Yeah. I'm sure in that situation, though, Donald Trump was super sensitive and understanding <laughs> of of the whole situation and the gender dynamics at work there. So at least you had that. Um, I, I mean, I've, as you said, it's a very small group, and I feel we have two charter members of this very small <laughs> group of people on this in this conversation. I, I wanted to ask you just one last thing about it's about your job too, but in a different way, which is just a difficulty that I found myself thinking about a lot, which is about one issue which I just think we all struggle to get anybody interested in, and yet maybe the most important thing of the lot. There's a new book out now called The Heat Will Kill You First about uh. climate change. <laughs> and one of the points about it is it's so difficult to just, uh, you know, get people, journal know. You know, journalists engaged, but audiences engaged. He has this fantastic observation, the author, about the word hot, he said the trouble is it has too many positive connotations, sexy women <laughs> in demand. So people aren't frightened of yeah. heating. And then you say global warming, and he says that sounds gentle and soothing, as if the most notable impact of burning fossil fuels will be better beach weather. I mean, I'm asking you this just because I don't know the answer to it, and I wrestle mm -hmm. with it myself, but I'm thinking that there you have a tougher job still because you're speaking to a mass network TV audience, not, yeah. you know, a, a newspaper with a particular kind of political leaning like my one. So how do you engage big audiences in this subject, which we all agree is obviously in some ways the biggest, most existential, but somehow lacks the day-to-day -day urgency of all the other news we all want to cover? Well, it does. And then in this country, you have the overlay of domestic politics on that that complicates it even further. It's actually really, really hard. And it's, it's interesting because we were talking about this last week with, you know, all the segments we were trying to fit into the show. It's such a hard topic set to make accessible. People can understand, like in this country, that the Canadian wildfires, for example, were really complicating flights and the air quality and things like that. Like once you have something like that, that is visceral and someone can relate to, like, in other words, like the problem is right in front of them, you can sort of engage them and explain it a little bit more or where that intersection between, um, you know, dryness and climate change is. And you almost have to like back into it through, you know, the extreme weather situation. I brought it up in the context of an interview with the transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, that's how I worked it in last Sunday to ask about some of the projections for the infrastructure plan that was bipartisan in this country, but um, may, according to some studies, be based on some flawed scientific calculations about rainfall, for example, and flooding and things like that. If you can make things more immediately accessible to people so they understand why it's their problem, I find often with climate change, what's so frustrating is it's 
it's like either it's a weather segment or it's admiring the problem. And <laughs> it sounds like a very complicated math equation that people can't relate to. Yeah. I remember covering when John Kerry was for the Obama administration, secretary of state and negotiating the Paris climate accord at that time, getting it on air at all was so complicated. And then during the Trump administration, ironically, it became this huge front page story because the, the president was exiting it. And all of a sudden people wanted to talk about this deal that no one wanted to talk about when yeah. it was negotiated yeah. because of the politics. So I don't know. Sometimes you have to figure out how to get people, as someone said to me once, how, how to eat their broccoli along with their ice cream. Um <laughs> in news. <laughs> and I feel like this is one of those topics. It's really hard. Uh, from a national security perspective, I think all the electric vehicles and things like that, there are ways to tell those stories that are interesting. Yeah, but no, you're completely right. As long as it's an eat your greens issue, uh, it just <laughs> yeah. doesn't, it doesn't make it out of page 17 in our paper or, yes. you know, I mean, it does, but it, you know, in terms of the audience's response. Yeah, we can, uh, talk forever and I, I I really would like to but I think we're we're winding up the conversation and I kind of want to ask you yeah. we, we talked a lot about foreign policy you know we're looking into the future and not the very distant future in, in the American presidential election we kind of it feels to me at least here in Israel everyone's sort of saying it's going to be a rematch it's going to be the Biden Trump mm -hmm. rematch do you still think that's what we're going to see I, I mean in this in both both ends of that question uh, the Trump and the Biden, this is where right. we're going to, I mean, obviously Biden's the nominee, et cetera, but is that what we're going to be seeing? This is like the topic A at all cocktail parties in Washington, <laughs> I have to tell you, <laughs> um, of how does this play out? And I think anyone who tells you with 100% certainty that they know is spinning you. Um, mm -hmm. I think the president is the nominee, um, barring something that happens that we, you know, can't forecast at this time, or there's a, a health related issue, which given his age, that is a front and, and center thing on minds uh, on both sides of the aisle and will be weaponized against him, of course. On the Republican side of the ledger, it's the, the wider this and this field gets, the more complicated it will become to potentially have an alternative to uh, the 45th president of the United States who wants to run again, Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of you know, things to parse here in terms of the dynamics. It's really about the primary system in this country and how it functions, you know, that the Republicans right now are not running to win over the American public. They are only running to win that piece of the Republican voter that shows up to bo bothers to show up at a primary. In most polls, Donald Trump comes out as the leading candidate. There's a very long period of time between now and then. In terms of his legal challenges, which are many, none of that will prevent him from running. There could be a, who knows how it plays out, decision in the January 6th portion of the federal investigation into the president that could happen closer to the election. And that proximity can be a complicating factor or does the federal government not move forward with charges? And then what does that say? Does that get interpreted or twisted as somehow like a clean bill of health, right? Mm -hmm. um, versus um, just something that couldn't be prosecuted uh, under the United States federal law. So it's really unclear. And it's also unclear to me for those Republicans that I talked to who want to find an alternative to Donald Trump, 
and say, well, the party will, will unify and do what the Democrats did in 2020, which was as soon as there's even one person breaking forward. And back then it was Joe Biden in South Carolina that mm-hmm. suddenly everyone else collapses and falls in line. There is an argument to be made that Republicans will do that. But then what does Donald Trump do? He is won't he, do that. <laughs> right. Um, so, He's not a falling in line kind of guy, I don't think. Exactly. <laughs> so how does that play out for that portion of the electorate that he has such a strong hold on? I, I just, I don't know. I think um, I'm with uh, Yonit Levy's rule about Israeli politics, which is you think of the most bizarre, surreal possible scenario, <laughs> and then it may well happen. I think <laughs> I think American politics complies with that rule too. It's whatever the sort of seasoned scriptwriters would think is the craziest storyline, that's the one that's going to happen <laughs> because the scriptwriters in the sky tend to make it that work that way. Uh, Margaret, it's been fantastic speaking with you. Thanks so much for speaking with us on Unholy. Thank you so much, Margaret. Thanks so much for having me. A great pleasure to speak to Margaret Brennan. As she says, she's there in Washington, where topic A is who is going to be the next president of the United States. But so uh, she is one of those, you know, and they're not many, actually, journalists in Washington who always keeps that global perspective, who isn't just narrowly insular in her perspective on the United States, instead is watching America's relationship with the entire world, including the Middle East. Yeah, and I I found what she said about China fascinating, especially the fact that the Americans find this the number one uh, topic. But uh, again, everything that she said about, you know, Netanyahu and Biden and, and all the rest, I thought was really fascinating. I'm glad we did this. We should move on to other news. We should. We should um, hand out some awards. Why don't we begin with our Chutzpah Awards, Crowded Field, as so often. I thought we would give an honourable mention. A strong nomination comes in from Stockholm, Sweden, where police have received a request from an individual wants to burn a Torah, the five books of Moses, in front of the Israeli embassy uh, following the burning of a Quran outside a mosque in Stockholm. The police force have said that, yeah, they had got a man in his 30s, had asked to burn the Jewish and Christian holy books as a symbolic gathering for the sake of freedom of speech. Well, I don't think our listeners need to be told that suggesting burning Judaism's most sacred text outside the Israeli embassy ticks a whole number of bigoted and problematic boxes. So um, a very strong contender from our man in his 30s in Sweden, as yet unnamed. But uh, I think the winner will probably have to go to Christie's Auction House, which drew controversy, is the nice way of putting it, recently for the, a sale which went uh, north of $200 million worth of jewels that belonged to Heidi Horten, who was widow of the billionaire Helmut Horten, who made his money in taking over former Jewish businesses during the last war. In other words, uh, Jewish businesses under duress having to sell up. And we know that was a very big part of the Nazis' war against the Jews. This man made a fortune from it, enough to amass an extraordinary collection of jewels, which Christie's were happy to sell. They were going to do a joint event with the Tel Aviv Museum of Art, and the Tel Aviv Museum has now dropped out of that event in protest at Christie's sale 
of uh, millions of dollars worth of uh, jewels acquired from Jews under duress. So a bit of a chutzpah reward to the auction house for perhaps not um, making that decision slightly earlier and without pressure from the Tel Aviv Museum. This um, somehow brings me to think, do you think we can auction off a chutzpah award? I don't know. We can could, we could yeah, think about that. that. could be a sideline, couldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Should we, but probably not Christie's after this one. <laughs> Maybe not. You, unless we ask Maybe Christie's not. to sponsor. Maybe not. Okay, so I am doing the mensch, which is a strange position for me. So I'll try. I'll audition to do the Mensch Award. You, you, long-time listeners will know I usually do the other, We do it the other way around. But we're giving uh, uh, the uh, Mensch Award to the Bell's Hasidic sect. We love talking about the Haredi community here on Unholy. We find it fascinating. And this uh, story comes from Haaretz. We should say that the Bell's sect is uh, Israel's second largest Haredi sect, and it started teaching boys about sexual abuse awareness. So teaching, essentially, students the risk of, of overstepping boundaries and obviously also to telling them how the risk of being harmed, how to prevent this in time. This is always a very sensitive issue for the ultra-Orthodox community, but there has been a change over recent years and a greater openness to this and to teach uh, young children about this. We think it's very important, so we think that the Mensch Award, I think, I mean, you don't have to join in, but I think that this is uh, very, very important. Also, can we give another Mensch Award? Can we do a dual Mensch this week? A duo Mensch? The committee is open to such a proposal. Yeah, let's hear that. Okay, so let me try, because I think that the Israel soccer team for under 21 uh, deserve the Mensch Award for a great performance. Uh, we did lose to England. I'm looking at you. At the semifinals, you were playing better. We actually wanted to do a live tweeting. Uh, Jonathan's a live tweet fanatic. He wanted to do a live tweeting of him and me watching the game, but it was during a <laughs> news broadcast, so we couldn't do it. But couldn't we lost anyway. We lost anyway. But the achievement, a big achievement for the Israeli team, also qualifying for the Paris 2024 Olympics and prompting a good joke running in Israel this week saying maybe we just let the under-21 Israelis run the land and maybe we'll be in a better situation. So I think they deserve the Yeah, this, It's a story with Israeli football. It always seems like it's about to break uh, you know, and about to happen. And the under-21s doing well makes you think, okay, three years' time, maybe they'll make it to the World Cup finals yeah. and so on. Um, well, so, something yes, happens to the Israeli youngsters between 18 and 21 that maybe changes the course of you know the rest you know of, what? of sport. Genuinely, that is a fascinating thing to dig into. Yeah. And of course, military service you're referring to, and that is a difference between Israel and uh, and its competitors in this uh, game. Although, of course, the team is mixed. There are uh, Arab yeah. men true, players true. and they don't all do military service. But you see, it's a whole other topic there. Uh, but no, I think worthy choices for the Mensch Award. And I particularly second what you say about those um, efforts among the ultra-Orthodox to, to begin to tackle this problem of sexual abuse and we know it's a real one so good to have registered that i want to just do one tiny little bit of housekeeping which is i know that lots of listeners were left on something of a cliffhanger by our conversation a couple of weeks back with the brilliant uh, nicholas heitner theater genius extraordinaire when we were talking about his wonderful new production of guys and dolls if you haven't yet seen it in london um, just do whatever it takes to get there <laughs> to see it but we talked about the character of um, Nicely Nicely Johnson, played inimitably in the first production by Stubby K. We were talking about how the sheer Jewishness of the Broadway musical, the Jewishness of Guys and Dolls. And there was a moment of um, of hesitation where neither Nicholas Heitner nor uh, you and me were certain that Stubby K was Jewish. 
We can confirm that Stubby K was indeed Jewish. Indeed, he rejoiced in the name of Bernard Shalom Kotzin. How could we not have said that Bernard Shalom Kotzin was Jewish? But Stubby K, he, the definitive. Why would he version. change it to Stubby K? It's such a you know wonderful name. I think it's one of our listeners who actually appointed us yes. to that fact, and we thank him very much. Yes, credit uh, to the listener for that. And do keep your responses to us coming. We love seeing them or at Unholy Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook and use those methods, those platforms. Who knows? Even the brand new Threads, the competitor yeah. wow, uh, for Twitter. Wow, a new social media platform. Color me excited. Brilliantly named after a drama describing a post-nuclear apocalypse. <laughs> well done, Mark Zuckerberg, for that one. Uh, Threads, you can go on there if you like, and Blue Sky and all the other platforms to Mastodon. You do it whatever you, wherever you like. Spread the word. I've mentioned before that people now come up to me and go, I am spreading the word about Unholy. We lots of uh, devoted listeners doing that. We thank you for it. Extremely. And let us also thank our team, Gaia Glazer, Omer Primat, and Rom Attic. And we shall meet next week, Jonathan. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.